I'd like to invite the children up for a children's moment this morning. Come on up. For those of you who are at home, feel free to scoot a little closer to your screen. I'm going to be showing a picture in a book. Come on up. Welcome, welcome. Thanks, Emily. <laughs> Come join us up here. I want you to be able to see this picture. You're not going to be able to see it all the way down there. <laughs> So some of you may know who this is, and some of you may not. Hi. Do you see this picture? Who is this? That's right. This is Malala. Can you say her name? Malala. And when she was just 11 years old, she did something so brave. Yes. Right. I don't know if y'all heard that, but she said she fought for girls' education. That's exactly right. She fought. She also shared with the entire world what was happening in her country. She was telling them that these men aren't allowing us to go to school. And it was very sad for her. But she even won a really big prize. Do y'all know about the Nobel? Yeah? That's right, the Nobel Peace Prize. And she won that when she was 17, which is actually not that much older than a lot of you. Maybe a little older than you, but not much older than a lot of you. That's a big deal. You know, most of the time the world is fair for us, right? But sometimes we see things that just aren't fair. We may see somebody being picked on or a group of people that don't have enough to eat or a place to live. And when we see something that's not fair, what do we need to do? We need to speak up like that. <laughs> when we're baptized, we ask a lot of questions right here at this front. And there's a lot of hard words in the questions that we ask to our parents or to adults who are being baptized. And one of the big questions we ask, will you accept the freedom and power to resist evil and injustice in whatever forms it presents itself? <laughs> He's saying, hey, Google, hey, Google. Um, I'd have to Google those words too. Those are tough words. And if we were Googling those words, we would all hear that it all boils down to when we see something that's wrong, we have to say that it's wrong and we have to work to make it right. It doesn't matter how old or how young we are. We all have this superpower to call out when things are wrong and to try to make them right. Let's pray. Are you ready to pray? Okay, let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you created us. We thank you for your love and for the superpower that you give us to help others and to make sure that everyone is treated fairly. And we thank you for Malala and her example to us. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Now, if you are three, four, or five, you can go to Children's Church with Pastor Maggie, Miss Emily, and she will take you over there right now. <laughs> hey, are you going to go to, oh, are you going to come with me? <laughs> Do you want to go to Children's Church? Okay, come here. I love that her first instinct was to get into the pulpit. That's a great instinct. And you can do that. Hey, are you going to go to Children's Church? <laughs> okay. She can stay up here if she wants. I'm really okay with that. 
She must really like the scripture passage too. (laughs) Here we are with one of my all-time favorite passages of scripture. The book of Luke, it's really short, but in John and other gospels, it's much longer. This is table flipping Jesus. This is good television. I want to pop a bag of popcorn and watch as Jesus gets all righteously angry. Geez, I love it. Just look at those folks sitting at the temple, taking up space with their loud animals and their money changing. I want to cheer Jesus on. You go, Jesus. You get those people over there. If Jesus was here today, I wonder where this might take place. Perhaps down at the bank or maybe down at City Hall or the state capitol. But oh no, this is awkward. It was at the temple where Jesus worshiped. He was doing this at church. But wait, what was wrong with what those people were doing? Am I needing to be driven out? After all, I'm the one that sits in Reed Hall sometimes and sells you things. During Christmas, those Guatemalan goods, that's me. The t-shirts you guys buy that comes through my office. Am I supposed to be stopping? Is Jesus coming to turn over my tables in Reed Hall? Looking at this action-packed scene in the temple, I had a lot of questions this week. First, I wondered about the historic context. I wonder what was so wrong with what was happening at the temple. What about the scene made Jesus so mad that he did something that kind of seems out of character for Jesus? In my reading for this week, I discovered there's actually nothing wrong with having animals for sale at the temple. It's kind of a courtesy that they do this. Weary travelers walked for miles from their hometown just to offer sacrifices at the temple. And I don't know about you, but it's hard to travel by myself, much less with a pigeon or a goat or a calf, especially one that's unblemished. So Jesus's anger here doesn't seem to be against selling these animals for sacrifice. Also, the money that they would have carried with them would have most likely been a Roman coin with the Caesar's impression on it, not appropriate for donation to the temple. So the money changers, they were a necessity too. So what made Jesus so mad? Scholars think there may be a few reasons. One, maybe the animal salespeople were charging exorbitant rates. Perhaps those selling goods at the temple were doing what the airport stores do these days. You know the scene. You've gone through security, you've taken everything off, put everything back on, subjected yourself to a very thorough search, triple-checked all your pockets to make sure you didn't have any keys to set off the alarms. You reload your bag, you get to the gate, Finally, you're tired, you're thirsty, and you were only allowed three ounces of liquid through security. So you duck into that airport store and you get water, and it's $5 for something that costs them a quarter to produce. In the same way, perhaps part of Jesus' problem is that there's exorbitant prices. They're gouging travelers, exploiting the poor. Or maybe it wasn't the price of the animals at all, 
But instead, those who ran the temple industrial complex simply expected too much money from the parishioners. The leaders got rich, wearing the nicest clothes and robes, eating the richest meals while riding the nicest camels, and all their parishioners were going hungry or in need. Another possible explanation for Jesus' outrage may have been that this activity was taking place in the court of the Gentiles. In the temple complex, there was only one place that Gentiles could go and pray, and this was it. Maybe he's angry because they are in the space that Gentiles could pray. He quotes the prophet Isaiah, My house shall be a house of prayer. The fuller quotation from that would be a house of prayer for all nations. Luke's gospel, while he genuinely loves the temple and Judaism, is specifically extending the reign of God to all people. Perhaps Jesus is angry that this space was taken up to accommodate a convenience store instead of allowing the Gentiles to come in and pray. I think at least one of the lessons we learn from this passage is that even the things that are on the face, not necessarily bad, can be stumbling blocks for others. Even church things, even holy things. The very temple itself was called a den of robbers, a place where thieves come to hide out with all of their loot around them after they were out in the world cheating and stealing from individuals. This sacred, holy place, defiled by those who claimed its protection and yet did not do the very things God told them to do to love their neighbors. The temple needed reform. Perhaps the temple then felt too much like a country club for the rich and seemed to be making money exploiting the poor. And so Jesus flips over the tables, drives the animals out in a scene that would have reminded those watching of what they had only heard about in the prophets. The prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea are full of stories like this, where prophets critique the religious establishment and with dramatic action both tell and show what God really requires. And they critiqued the religious establishment because it was supposed to be sharing the very holiness and love of God. You can only truly offer critique of that which you love. And Jesus loved the temple. Luke makes it clear that Jesus' family was thoroughly Jewish. Just in December, we saw that Mary and Joseph took baby Jesus to the temple and Simeon and Anna held Jesus in their arms and celebrated. As a child, Jesus teaches at the temple. He calls it his father's house. In fact, he gets in trouble. It's one of the only scenes we see of Jesus as a kid, him getting in trouble for being away from his parents. And he looks at mom and dad and said, didn't you know I would be here at my father's house? As an adult, Jesus tells everyone, I'm here to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And so his outrage isn't with Judaism itself. The scene in the temple isn't about overthrowing a Jewish identity. It's about something else. 
There's political tension present in the book of Luke. It's a tightrope that's being walked here. There's at least three entities that could be seen as the boss. Kay Gray reminded our Bible study on Tuesday that during this time, Jesus and the Jewish people of God were under Roman occupation. Roman occupation meant you pay taxes to Caesar, acknowledge Caesar's civic authority, and you could worship whatever deity you chose to worship in relative peace. So Caesar's in charge. The scene we read today comes just before this tax scene in the book of Luke, where Jesus tells those who tried to trap him to render under Caesar what Caesar's, and render unto God what is God. But this scene's in the temple. And in the temple, there's another set of people in charge, chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, who laid out and interpreted the basic tenets of the Jewish law for the faithful to follow. And they had immense power. And with that power came the drive to maintain that power and the ever-present possibility of corruption. Jesus presents a threat to their power. He's called the king of the Jews. People have listened to him. He's charismatic. Thousands have followed him to listen to his teachings. And just before this particular scene, he has triumphantly entered the city on a donkey with people shouting Hosanna and waving palm branches at him. And while he hasn't taught anything explicitly against the temple, he has taught with authority. Is Jesus the real boss? And if he is, what does that mean for those currently in power? I can see why they're concerned. Jesus has caused a lot of problems. In Luke, the various entities are always trying to trap Jesus. I told you there's political tension here. So in chapter 20, we get this group that comes up to Jesus and says, By whose authority are you doing these things? And he answers with a question about John's authority and baptism. Was it by human authority or was it by God's? And Luke shows us the internal discussion of those who are trying to trap them. Picture it in your mind's eye. They are huddled together talking about how to respond to Jesus. Well, if we say he was human, the people are going to kill us. John was a hero to the people. And if we say that John baptized with the authority of God, Jesus is going to ask us why we didn't believe him. So they come back up to Jesus and they say, we don't know. And Jesus replies, well, then I'm not going to tell you. So who's the boss? You're here at church on a Sunday morning, so I'm guessing you know the answer to this question. It's Jesus. During our service of baptism, we ask those being baptized or their parents, do you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior? Put your whole trust in his grace. Promise to serve him as your Lord in union with the church, which is open to all people. And our preacher next week is going to go more into that question. But lest you think anything else, Jesus is the boss. We serve Jesus who is word made flesh. Jesus is the living word, the one who has told us that we, his disciples and followers, will do even greater things 
than what he did. When you sign on to be part of this community through joining, which is going to happen a little bit later, or baptism, which we had at 845, you are pledging allegiance to the kingdom of God. And your citizenship in that kingdom has privileges, but it also has great responsibility. Scripture says, to whom much is given, much is expected. We've been given eternal life. And everyone from Voltaire to Spider-Man's Uncle Ben reminds us, with great power comes great responsibility. There is power that you accept in this font. You are saying that you trust God, that you believe in Jesus, and that through baptism, you accept the power and freedom God gives you to resist evil and justice and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. And that is the ministry of all baptized believers. You don't have to go to divinity school or stand before a committee of people to do ministry. You, yes you, each one of you, are in ministry. This is serious. I want you to hear these words about baptism from Gail Felton. Baptism is initiating people into the Christian faith and church. It's a process that transcends a specific event. It's a protracted process, one that involves much time for change and for growth. It is a radical and countercultural process that shapes people into Christians in defiance of the values and pressures of secular society. If we are to become Christian enough to share in God's divine mission for the world, we must take our baptism with utter seriousness. As God's baptized people, who we are and what are we to do? Baptism tells us who God is and who God intends for us to be. We are loved more deeply by God than we can ever comprehend. And God is unwilling to allow us to be less than we are created to be. We are in covenant with God. We belong to God. And baptism shows us what we are to do. We are to be God's ministers, sent by God to serve the world, to work for reconciliation, justice, and peace. End quote. Last week, we renounced the spiritual forces of wickedness and rejected the evil powers of this world and repented of our sins. This week, we take that a step further. We accept the freedom and power God gives us to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. Even if the form that evil, injustice, and oppression takes is in the church. And I will tell you now that none of us are sinless, not even at West End. Throughout Methodist history, there have been times when evil, injustice, and oppression have lived within the church. Our very church, West End, was born into the Methodist Episcopal Church South. It's an entire branch of the United Methodist Church now that allowed slavery. 
Thank God for the people along the way who were faithful and accepted their freedom to resist that particular evil. And what I appreciate about our baptismal vows is that we make it clear that we are to reject evil, injustice, oppression, in whatever forms they take. In other words, the horrors of this world don't look the same everywhere and in every time. Throughout the years, we've had many reasons to resist. A hundred years ago, under Jim Crow laws, we would not have been able to worship together side by side with everyone in this room or go out to eat with them after church. And right here in Nashville, leaders like the Reverend Jim Lawson and Dr. C.T. Vivian, Dr. Rip Patton and Diane Nash resisted those particular evils. They marched, they protested, And still today, while we've gained lots of rights, we have miles to go. We still have to protect voting rights and lives and livelihoods. 70 years ago, I would not be allowed to preach from this pulpit. Five out of six of your pastors would not have been allowed to be ordained at all. And faithful men and women and siblings worked for my place here. And still today, several of us raise our voices alongside those of our LGBTQIA community in protest of our Book of Discipline and its inability to acknowledge the gifts and ministry and marriage of all. Across the world, we've collectively protested the brutality of Russia as it launched an unprovoked attack and war of aggression against Ukraine open table fights for the rights of our friends and homelessness. Our very own youth at their 30-hour famine just fought the evils of world hunger. They raised money for a local ministry. They actually made food for others while they themselves went without food and then served sandwiches in the city. We must fight evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves big and small, in our everyday lives and on the world stage. We fight with love. We resist with the ballot, with our dollars, with our feet, and with our voices. This is our sacred vow. We make this vow with each other and with God. And during the season of Lent, we're called to self-reflection. And so I ask you, have you accepted the freedom and power that God has given us to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. And are you willing to do that even when they present themselves in the form of something that you love? Are you willing to look at your business and root it out there? Are you willing to look at your relationships, your home, your church. I am sure that there are still ways that we are keeping the very people that God calls us to love at bay. And when we begin to root out that evil and live into the beloved kingdom of God, we are called to live. There is freedom and joy. 
a world of flourishing lives there. Once we get past the evils of this world, a place where all are welcomed and loved and accepted, fed, housed, celebrated. I want to live in that world. And I bet you do too. We have to make sure we stand out every single evil that we find so that we can get there. During these next moments, Matt is going to play for us, and I invite you to reflect at your seat. Have you accepted the freedom and power that God has given us to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves?